Kia ora and welcome to the Destinate NZ podcast. I'm Michelle. And I'm Chambers. And today we're tackling the youth market versus high net worth travellers. Yes. And we brought Brian Westwood on to discuss those points and discuss we did. Yes. So Brian is the general manager of marketing and sales at YHA. So really involved in that youth market. And of course, there's been a lot of chat in this past week about Minister Nash's comments around the tourism industry and how we should just be targeting those wealthy travellers from overseas. So Chambers, what do you think? Well, I think it's all about the mix. And I think Minister Nash is unfortunately just focused on one sector and, and I don't think that's right. And obviously working in with the youth travel sector and the backpacker and the adventure travel sector, for me, it's disappointing to hear that. So Brian made some very good and informed points that I'd love to see Minister Nash listen to, really, and take on board. What did yeah. you think? Well, look, I think there's a couple of things going on here. For me, I do think that there needs to be a cleanup of the Freedom Camping Act around the country. It is a bit of a blight on our industry. And I say that as somebody who worked in the camper van industry for a long time and actually spent quite a lot of time in the UK promoting freedom camping in New Zealand. But I think it's got to the point now where it's become so popular that it has overrun some of our most scenic spots. And we haven't kept up with the infrastructure required to look after those campers. And of course, the other part of it is you look at what it's done to our commercial holiday parks. And most of them around this region have actually got rid of all of their camper van parking spots because they're just not being used now because people are choosing to stay for free in some of these incredible locations. Mm, yeah, I agree. That definitely needs to be looked at and it needed to be looked at 10 years ago. Yeah. And I think we've got a real opportunity to do that and tidy that up across the whole board. But yeah, I think my biggest thing would be, and one of the points Brian does make in, in our show is just that Nash needs to take a few minutes to understand the whole industry and how that works and what impacts each part of the industry has on the rest of the economy and New Zealand itself. Yeah, and not just look for that sound bite, which it kind of feels like he might have been there. I might be being a bit unfair, but it yeah, did feel like it was that little sound bite that the media picked up on. The other bit that we didn't talk about with Brian, but I'm quite keen to discuss, is this whole inequity on the conservation estate. So you think of the inbound tour operators who, if they're taking groups through on our conservation estate need concessions to do that mm -hmm. and they pay for that. Mm -hmm. The operators who operate on the, the dock estate mm -hmm. obviously have to pay big money to do that. But then if you're in a camper van or you're in a rental car, you can travel onto the dock estate, you can walk some of these great walks, you can park and explore for free. And that to me seems, I've been on this bandwagon for a number of years now, but to me, it just doesn't seem right. You know, you look at the Tongariro Alpine Crossing, for example, and I think at its peak, we were hosting what, 120,000 visitors on that walk a year. And it doesn't cost a cent to do it. No, I know. And 
I'm with you, Michelle. And I think there's so many countries out there that have a system in place to look after that. And, you know, Australia do and America does. Yep. Yeah. The UK do with their national trust. And even if it's just the visitor pays for that passport to get them a one-stop shop and you can go and do those walks after you've paid a certain amount for free or you pay each time you do them, but it could be a pay as you go option or you can pay up in front or pay at the end or whatever. I don't know the system, but I'm with you. I, I agree. It's otherwise it's expected what the operators pay. Then that money has to go back in to maintain those tracks for the free. Yep. And that's where that issue becomes an issue because then the operators are trying to encourage volume in a national park to service the needs that, that we want and DOC are giving them higher, bigger concessions and allowing them to do it because they need the money to service yeah. the tracks that the three people get to walk. So I, yeah, I'd love to see that change too. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think at the moment it does need a law change is how it's been um, described to me when I've asked that question in the past. And I think there's a little bit of nervousness around changing the law because obviously they wouldn't want to charge Kiwis to mm. access national parks. But I just look at what happens around the world and I think that is an opportunity for us. As if we're talking about freeloaders, as the minister talked about in his speech, that we do... We're, we're allowing them to freeload because we're giving them access to these incredible places for free. Mm -hmm. And that's an opportunity for us to put some money back into upgrading infrastructure and facilities around those areas. Oh, 100%. You just take the Hooker Valley, for, for instance, just the amount of people that are currently on there now to what there were. It's actually a pleasure to walk mm. now. Whereas when to walk it a year ago, like, Honestly, you were in, in, in line and good luck overtaking the person who was walking in front of you because there was a queue of people the other side. So you couldn't walk at your own pace. You had to bumble along because there were that many people on the track. Oh, and it's not a pleasant experience either, is it? No, you feel not, like you're on a highway. Yeah, it's not really 100% pure. <laughs> but anyway, no, and I think... We won't go there. <laughs> but I think your point is really fair and maybe that would reduce or it, maybe it would put other people, if the Hooker Valley track was a walk they really wanted to do, it was at that expense and then maybe they'll do another walk instead because and that starts that dispersal again, which... Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Right. Well, that's all we'll cover off before we get into Brian, because it is quite a long interview, but stay with us, everybody, because it's well worth listening to what Brian has to say. And as Lisa said, he's got some very informed views and has a really good understanding of the value of the youth sector and how we can incorporate that into our entire tourism marketing mix for the future. So enjoy the episode and we'll see you soon. See you soon. Kia Brian, and welcome to the Destinate NZ Show. Thank you. Brian, now I've known you in the industry for some years, and I remember, I think it was on a rooftop in Sydney back in 2013, when it had just been newly renovated, if my memory recalls. But we've also sat on the Bayata board together, which is the Backpacker Youth Adventure Tourism Association board. So would you mind filling in our listeners with a little history about how you ended up here as GM of Marketing and Sales YHA and in NZ? Yep. Firstly, let's, for your listeners, let's just clarify that rooftop. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was like a balcony area looking over Sydney Harbour. Oh, okay. 
Like I came to I came to New Zealand in 1992. I got married to a Kiwi um, in Scotland, and then we came over in '92. That was the first recession that we went through, and I had a choice of either being unemployed in Scotland or unemployed in New Zealand. So we chose New Zealand as the the better of the two options. And from there, had a had a um, job with a clothing manufacturer as an accountant for a while, and then moved into uh, tourism because I wanted to marketing as my background. As what I studied and joined Canterbury Tourism Council, which is now Christchurch NZ. So as a marketing exec for Australia and New Zealand, I did that for three years. Then took on my own RTO, which was uh, Huranui Tourism, which is Hanma Springs, Waipurung. And uh, we connected up with um, Kaikoura and developed the Alpine Pacific Triangle touring route. So we did that for four years. And that was really good because that exposed me to the mix of the really small operator alongside the larger operators of Hanlon Springs, Thermal Pools. So really looking at and how to make small communities embrace um, tourism. And Huranui was, is also a very strong farming community. So it's also trying to balance all of those things together. So that was definitely one to cut my teeth on in terms of experience. Then I got out of the of Huranui Tourism and worked for Cabbage Tree Creatives, which is a website development company. Did that for nine years and also co-owned Tourism Innovations, which is a national database system before Tourism New Zealand built theirs. Tourism New Zealand built theirs, pretty much put us out of business. So there you go. But it was all creative tourism business and tourism website. So again, that exposed me to a lot of the larger businesses in New Zealand and got to understand some of their strategies and how things worked from that angle. As with all businesses, small businesses, as they get successful, you employ more people. And I ended up being an HR manager instead of a marketing person because we just got so big, it was just looking after people all the time. So I wanted to get back into marketing. And that's why I joined YHA because it was one of the few places and few organizations where the head office is in Christchurch. Mm. So I could be a marketing manager for a national organization and uh, haven't looked back since. So that's where I'm at. Brilliant. So the youth backpacker and adventure market's a key sector for our entire industry, but especially for YHA. There was a paper that you shared recently on LinkedIn that you'd written prior to COVID showing some statistics around the youth sector being worth $1.5 billion a year. So what are your thoughts on our new tourism minister's idea of only marketing to high net worth individuals so my thoughts are i'll be polite my thought i think it's been he's, he's just come out really early he's been really premature with his his vision i think he's been ill-informed and i think there's a little bit of sort of populist politics going on let's pick a market that you think people are gonna hate on mm-hmm. and let's have a crack at them and then there's in terms of the advice that he's been getting i'm really not sure what that's about because the high net value customer is a very niche customer it's very limited and it doesn't fit with what New Zealand delivers and I think that the the problem is is that there's a mismatch there in terms of how the industry is structured what the investment is in the industry in terms of all of the businesses that work to delivering towards the youth market in particular and basically turning your back on that is, mm. I think, is just a little bit too early to be coming out with vision statements when you haven't had the opportunity to really understand what is going on with the market. 
So, you know, I just, I just like him to just be silent for a couple of months, listen to the industry, listen to what's going on, talk to people, talk to the, we've got this tourism futures task force going on at the moment, listen to what they've got to say, and then, then start to evolve your vision and start to evolve a, a strategy. He's got three years, he's got plenty of time, doesn't need to rush into it. And just give us the opportunity to give him some education from the industry. Mm-hmm. And I think the other, the really important thing that people have to understand is that we are not broken. It's not a broken industry. The only reason that we're in the position that we're in is because the borders have been closed on us. Exactly. We didn't do that. Yep. Yep. So this industry has been delivering heaps of uh, revenue into the community. And yes, we've got some pressures of growth like you get with any other industry that's growing at the rate that we're growing. And yes, those things need to be dealt with, but that doesn't mean to say that you just completely rewrite how the industry operates. That's, that's just not, not appropriate. That's a really good point, Brian, because I think that's one of the things that we've noticed in we're not broken, but there has been this discussion around over tourism and pressure in some of these smaller regions. And at the summit last week, when the minister spoke, he did talk a little bit about everything being up for grabs, including the Conservation Act, and obviously Freedom Camping, which has come out with further remarks on that. And I just wonder if there is an opportunity for us to look at how some of that wealth or the the money that's generated through tourism is distributed through the country a little bit better than what it currently is. Because at the moment, it all seems to go to this big pot that sits in Wellington and central government, and it's not redistributed back out. And therefore, the pressure then comes back onto the smaller regions and the councils and the ratepayers to fund some of that infrastructure. Uh, totally. I think it's absolutely outrageous that we're asking farmers to be funding tourism infrastructure in yeah. our small communities. The, the, that's just not right. It shouldn't be happening that way. And the problem is, as you're quite right, is that the money is funneled away into a central government pot and the central government is deciding, well, we're not going to spend that on tourism. We're going to, we're going to spend it elsewhere. You know, over, over there's been... Two really good strategies have been written by the industry, being really clear about what the problems are, being really clear about what the solutions are, and have always stated the government needs to play its part in terms of investment. $42 billion of GST has been paid over 20 years into Mm -hmm. the government coffers. Imagine if we just had 10% of that, $4 billion worth of infrastructure on simple things like potentially a park and ride in Queenstown, you know, yeah. three or four big car parks take away that congestion out of, the, out of the, the township of Queenstown. Those sorts of things with that kind of money, that should have already happened. But, yeah. And it's not one government either. It's multiple governments. Yeah. So it's time that they stepped up and they put in their investment into the um, industry that is generating. And this is money that is coming from overseas as well. Mm. No, we're not. It's not circulating money in within an economy. This is new foreign exchange earnings that comes into the economy. That's how you grow from getting money from outside of your household. Yeah. All we're doing at the moment is you're shuffling money between brothers and sisters in the same household. That doesn't that doesn't grow your wealth. So so we need to we need to really understand that. And sorry, I'm going on. But the <laughs> other key thing is you got me started. The other key <laughs> thing is around. This idea 
that we are somehow going to be able to control numbers. Yeah. When we open up, we are going to we are going to have lots of people traveling around the world. There's this pent up desire to travel. Right. The airlines are the ones that are going to decide who comes into this country, not mm -hmm. us. And mm -hmm. if we don't acknowledge that and face that fact, and we don't start investing now, we are going to be in so much more trouble than what we're in now. And the only people that can fix that is the government. The industry can't do it. And the industry is here to make money. Mm. Let's, let's get that them across as well. So we'll do our bit, but we need government to do their bit as well. In August, mid-pandemic, 1.8 million people from Britain went to Spain in August alone. That just shows you the mentality. People haven't changed their travel mentality. I agree. They're just going to keep moving. So I agree. And I've had that conversation with a few other people that said, oh, it's going to be so different. It's going to be exclusive. It's going to be this. And I was like, those airlines will want to be flying the minute they can get them back in the air. They're in the same boat as us. We want to open our doors to more visitors when we, as soon as we can. You know, that's, that was no different before and it's not been any different now. And I think the fact that you, even myself, I mean, New Zealand's a great country to be stuck in in terms of going through this COVID pandemic. But the reality is even I'm feeling like, God, I can't wait to get on a plane and get out of here. You know, just because there's more to see. And that's what that's what we've learned. We've grown up knowing that we can go traveling. I don't think that's going to change. We might be a bit more mindful about where we travel and how we travel and encourage a bit more of a greener, cleaner form of traveling. But we'll still want to travel and, ex and have those experiences. That's exactly right. And there's a whole heap of businesses and industry out there that need to get their numbers in in order to build back up their cash flow. Mm. all of our reserves have been wiped out so we need the business to come in and build up our cash flow so if anybody thinks that we're not going to try and get more people in they, they're just kidding themselves really are i just don't see any way of being able to i can understand if they're deciding where to spend their marketing dollars but there's no way that we can restrict who comes into the country they're not having an asset means test on the way into the country to say show us how wealthy you are or anything like that and, and you're right brian we are here to make money and we'll all be doing whatever we can to to enjoy that again hopefully one day if we're referring to the high net visitor and we could be talking the elite. We're talking about a couple that may take, may charter a private jet to fly around the country. How's that any more sustainable for us or better for us? Like that's just two people coming to visit and doing that. Like, yeah. yeah. But then there's a whole argument and Michelle's discussed it numerous times about what is high value? Like, this kind of leads me on to my next question, really, with you, Brian, because we talked about regional dispersal and Kiwis. We've seen that they're doing that. And you're saying the travel, the youth travel sector also do this. And one of your um, points in your paper that you raised was spend per visit as opposed to spend per day. And I guess for me, bringing in that value, that high net value, I guess this kind of aligns with that. Why is it so important to focus on the visit value as opposed to the, the day value? So, so they, when we're looking, when we're looking at this, we're, we've got to look at it from the totality of the the visit because the the length of stay for a youth visitor is around about twenty five days per visit on average. Now these are averages, so you're going to have different um, scopes of that. The length of stay for the highest spending age demographic, which is the forty to forty nine year olds, is ten days. So your youth visitor spends two and a half times more time than the 
higher spending one, but their daily spend is not two and a half times more than the youth one. So overall, the mix is the, the spend, the actual, when you just look at the dollars, is roughly the same, two or three hundred dollars either way. The difference is that the spend for the high net wealth people or the, the highest spend at the moment in terms of their travel behavior is that it's concentrated into 10 days. That means they only get to see the key icon places. They will only go into those places. If you only focus on those people, what you're going to need is you're going to need to double the number of that type of visitor into the country. So you're, not only will you take away the youth away from the regions, what you'll do is you'll concentrate more people more visitors into the areas that are already um, congested. So there'll be more people going into Queenstown. There'll be more people going into um, those areas that are, are struggling now. And they're all going to fly in. They will fly in and they'll fly out. So the regions, the, what you want is you want people to come in, spend some time to enjoy the country. They are time rich, the youth. So they have got the ability to go out. They will engage more with the communities that they're in. They'll spend in the dairies and the supermarkets and all those other areas that rely on that extra population to come in and sustain their business. You know, you look at banks um, and where they've got FPOS machines. They've withdrawn FPOS machines and banks from townships that have, don't have the population, but those are their tourism centers. They get those facilities. It's all of those types of things. And youth go out and they, and they drive the population that way. So they, they, they do go to more regions. They do do more activities. And I think the other, the other interesting aspect with the youth market is that they don't just stay in backpackers. They're not just backpackers. Mm -hmm. When you look at the split of where they stay, it is almost identical to people that are over the age of 35. It's almost identical for the people that are under the age of 35. They stay in lodges. They stay in hotels. And But what they do is that it's a style of travel that they decide, well, actually, I'm not going to spend all of my money on a luxury hotel. I'll wait until I'm 50 to do that. Mm -hmm. I'll spend it on the backpackers. I'm, I'm young and energetic and I, I want to meet you people, but I'm going to go and do I'm going to do the bungee. I'm going to do the um, skydive. I'm going to do all the expensive stuff because I'm not spending it on my luxury lodge or my fine wine. So it's where the spend is and how it's spent is really important to understand, not just the fact that one person has got X number of dollars. So it's understanding that whole mix rather than just picking a type of person and saying we want you because then they're going to spend it in the wrong places i believe but it's and again it's not just one or other it's and 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 yeah Mm. so what we're not we're not saying to the minister ignore high net worth we should still be going with them but what we're saying is don't ignore the youth market which is what he said he said we're only going to focus on one segment we should be focusing across the board or trying to get influence people across the board yeah, I think the other part of the youth market, which hasn't really been touched on, Brian, is the importance that, or the, I guess the contribution that they make, not only to the tourism industry, but also to our workforce. Like you only have to look around mm. our hospitality sector, even go to a hospital and speak to nurses. And a lot of them are European British, and they've started out as backpackers traveling around the country and then decided that they love the, the country and want to stay here and, and work. So that's a, you know, that's a big contribution. And where would we be without them if, if they weren't coming through and falling in love with New Zealand? 
I mean, the whole mission of the Youth Hostel Association is one of getting different cultures together mm. and people experiencing the world and getting to understand each other together. So that's really important from a young age as well. Mm. But you're right in terms of the employment stuff. And I think what we're finding is we're starting to understand just how much it influences other, other sectors and other mm. industries as well. Yeah. So you talk about the regional seasonal employment visas. Now, the number of those visas are actually at the same level as they were last year. So when they talk about those, whether they're coming into the country or not, I'm not sure. But the actual visa allocation is exactly the same number. Yeah. What's changed is that the student visas and your working holiday visas have plummeted. So this time last year, we had a 40, 46,000 working holiday visa people in the country. We've now got just under... 13,000. Wow. That's your gap. They're the people that aren't out in the paddocks and they're not, they're not picking the, the fruit off the trees. That's, mm. that's the problem. And that is impacting all of these other industries. Not to mention the fact that during summer, I guarantee you that we will have New Zealanders complaining that service levels are not, are not that great because we haven't got the people to actually be able to serve quickly, make your coffee, actually yeah. serve you at your tables. Yeah. Because they've gone. Absolutely. We've just got a real issue in, in a couple of the regions we work in, I work in here, with the fact that there's now cafes are already saying we're going to have to close two days a week. We possibly aren't going to be doing night service. You know, like Kiwis are going to come to these towns and we're not going to have everything open in the height of summer because they can't find these workers. And what an MB did a study in 2013 that looked at the impact of temporary migrant workers on the New Zealand workforce. And that study, it basically, it didn't say that it took, it didn't say that it added a huge amount to the economy, but it also was quite clear that it, it, those people did not take money away from Kiwis that were working. And the, in another study in Australia, what it found was that the fact that you were able to open longer hours, provide better service, turn things over a lot quicker, was actually increasing the economic value of, of that industry. And therefore you were able to, the locals were able to be employed as managers mm-hmm. and the international staff were the front front service staff. That's how it works and that's how it, how it grows. And, and yeah, it, it was, it's been one of those messages that has been mixed up between immigration versus the working holiday visa, which is more of a tourism travel product. Mm. New Zealanders are not going to go down to Queenstown for a six week seasonal job. They're just not going to do it. No, although I see that they're trying to encourage Kiwis to go and do that and have their OE in Queenstown this summer. So we'll be interesting to see if they can change a few minds. Yeah. Mm. Hey, now one of the other things, Brian, you you refer to some of the lessons from overseas in the paper that you've written. Can you give us some insights into those lessons that we should be aware of here in New Zealand? So I think the big thing um, out of that is looking at what um, Australia's been doing and what it, what it learned over the last four or five years. So they turned their back on the backpacker market. They basically switched off the marketing to that. And then what happened was they experienced what we're experiencing now in terms of the horticultural sector just turned around and said, we've got nobody to pick our pick our fruit or pick our vegetables. And they were desperate for backpackers. So they actually joined up with the tourism sector and lobbied government really, really hard about the fact that we need these people in the country to do this type of work because Australians just aren't doing it. The government 
took on board. They had a they had a commission. They took on board the the feedback from those industries, and they turned around and they ran a seven point five million dollar campaign to get backpackers back into Australia, and they worked really hard to get that. They extended their visas and they created visas that say that you can have a one year working holiday visa, but if you go and work in the in the horticultural sector, we'll extend that for another year for you, so you can stay longer. So it's looking at the mechanisms and the levers that will enable us to make the most out of those visitors, and they spend their money back in the country. So they mm-hmm. go and work, and then they'll spend it all before they go home, because that's mm-hmm. what they want to do. So it's using those kinds of tools and those kinds of mechanisms. Canada's the same. They're working really hard to attract the student market and the working holiday market as well, because they understand that. Both of those markets are really important in terms of the longevity of their stay and their overall spend in the country as well and the contributions they have to other industries. So I think those are the sorts of things that we need to be paying attention to. I think that on that is we are very insular in our thinking, I believe. We don't compare ourselves with other countries. When you look at our tourism statistics, we look at our growth comparative to where we are, we were before. We never look at our growth in comparison to where other countries have gone or our value and growth in value of statistics. So I think we should be taking a step back and looking at how we perform in relation to some of our key markets that are similar to us. Are we experiencing over tourism and compared with the rest of the world? And from what I've looked at no we're not even on a population versus visitor numbers and um, so what is our problem and and if we compare ourselves with what's happening around the world we can learn from what they're doing learn from the good things and the bad things and then start developing our own thing but we just seem to have this mentality that we know it all ourselves within our own little bubble and nobody's going to tell us what to do and this is the way that it's going to be and we just need to grow up a little bit i think mm. Mm. So, okay, we're out of quite a few of our lockdowns and that's open. So how's YHA holding up and have there been any opportunities that have presented themselves since that wouldn't have before? How are we holding up? Well, it's, we're holding up. <laughs> Just. That's good. Okay. <laughs> it's, we've, we've actually been surprised and thankful that we've had a growth in our domestic FIT market. So that's grown by about 50% mm-hmm. um, on what we normally get. So that's really, really good. It's over our winter period. So we're going to start feeling the pain over the next few months as we go in. Just remembering that the um, domestic market makes up 20% of our business. So 50% grows great, but it still only makes up about 30% in terms of revenues. So things are really tough. And I've got to... I'm going to take this opportunity just to say that our front line guys, our guys that are in the hostels and girls are doing an outstanding job. They are getting, they're working so hard and they are, you know, it, it, it's, it's really, really tough because they, they have to do everything and they have to do everything on a shoestring and they have to be the service that they're giving our guests. And we are still getting four and five star reviews and through all of our hostels from the domestic market, which is traditionally quite a critical market. Mm-hmm. And so they're just doing an, an amazing job. And we're just so lucky and grateful to um, have those people doing that for us. And it is going to be a hard, hard summer for everybody. Things that we've, opportunities that we've learned. I think it, it's really just probably just around what 
the core is what the what the core the things that we can give away and not stop doing that we don't have to do if we don't need to do them we'd like to do but we don't necessarily need to do them and that goes everything from operationally to to what we do with our marketing and, and where we spend our money uh, other things it's really just been survival mode to be honest just yeah. staying afloat same as everyone yeah yeah, mm. yeah it's been a tough mm. few months now, so today's youth are likely to be the generation to change the way that we do things in the future and lead some of that change. Do you believe that we'll see any new trends for the travel sector once the borders open? And what do you think they might look like? I think, the, I think our youth market has already started off and there was already changing motivations from our youth market. It turned, it's gone from the more hedonistic style of uh, uh, young people going out and getting drunk every night and uh, that's they came to New Zealand to spend all night in the bar and never see the country sleep yeah. all day in the bus to mm. a lot uh, to a shift to more experiential type of travel mm. less of that hedonism and more of they're not drinking as much as they used to I think that's actually a global thing yeah. and I think the this experience and also the experience with they've grown up with their parents that have gone through the global financial crisis as well so they've they've had a very conservative experience of growing up, holding on to your money, saving, looking after the planet. All of these things are starting to come to a head. So I think what will they will turn around and expect business to operate in a manner that is sustainable and is socially sustainable as well. So I think we did some research about two years ago looking at the motivations for travel amongst the youth from 13 years to about 24 years across different countries in Europe. And the, the core findings in that is, is just that they're definitely shifting to a much more socially conscious type of traveler. doesn't mean that it's, a, and we've got to be really careful how we interpret that. It doesn't mean that they're just, you know, there's going to be a, a wave of hippies coming into the country. <laughs> it's, it's just that they're going to expect you to be acting responsibly, you know, environmentally sound and socially sound they're not going to accept any things that you're taking advantage of your own staff and stuff like that so i think again it's just that they will just expect a better behaved industry and they'll be vocal about anybody that doesn't behave really so i think that's probably the the fundamental otherwise it will be pretty much as much this really okay so a bit more about yourself, Brian, because you're the GM of Marketing and Sales White Jay. You also share your time as a senior consultant for Angus and Associates, which is why you know all this data and information, as well as a volunteer for St. John. So how do you manage to balance your time with all this? <laughs> and have you got any tips? Okay, so you sent me this question before, so I've, I have had a chance to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> Key thing that I wanted, I, I don't think... There's anything new in terms of time management tips. There's plenty of that around. So I'm just going to tell you what my, I think it's a mindset and a philosophy of working more than anything else. So I get really irritated when people demonize hard work and demonize you working long hours or whatever. That really irritates me because if you want to do that, then do it. You know, it's not a bad thing. Just because other people want to sit and watch television for most of the night doesn't mean that everybody else has to do that mm. and I think that in terms of the 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 work ethic it's it's my favorite quote is from Yoda and <laughs> Yoda Yoda says do or do not there is no try and I think that applies to work as well when you go to work you turn up work 
You don't go to work and fluff around and procrastinate and sort of try and work, do things to avoid doing that really horrible job that you know that you're going to have to get to. Because the more time you do that, it's actually just expanding the amount of hours that you have to work. So turn up to work, do the job you have to do and focus in on it and you'll get through a hell of a lot more as well. And question and read and learn beyond your own job as well, because the more that you do that and the more that you understand how things connect and how people connect and who to talk to, you get through things a lot quicker because you, you can actually come to your decisions a lot faster than having to go out and go, oh, I don't know, I've, I've, I've never read about that. So I'm going to have to go and research and stuff like that. So just keep doing it. Just keep learning and keep, um, keep being curious. And that helps you actually speed things up as well. But at the end of the day, it's your life. You have only have one of them. Your time is limited. You don't know when it's going to end. So you just understand that you, you have a very limited time here. And on your gravestone, do you want to it written that you saw the full box set of Game of Thrones? Or do you want it written that you were had a full and fulfilled life? And just that's sort of the philosophy. I want to go out thinking I've done everything I've wanted to do, achieved everything that I've gone out to achieve. And, you know, sure, that means I, I, I work hard, but, you know, that's what I want to achieve out of life. But that's my decision. If you want to do something else, that's entirely your choice. I love that. Yeah, coming from someone who also hasn't seen one episode of Game of Thrones, might just throw that in there. <laughs> <laughs> completely bypassed me have no idea what it's about <laughs> brian look we're nearly at the end and it's been great having you on our show i think we've um, made it pretty clear that the youth sector is invaluable to our tourism industry and it's rebuilt but we also need to encourage youth to choose tourism as a career choice so what advice do you have to a young person thinking about what they might be doing when they're finishing school or university at the end of this year who are keen to be part of our tourism industry? Well, I'd say that and do those casual jobs. Go and work in a cafe, go and work in the front line and find out whether it's something that you enjoy and do that work. If you enjoy working and, and meeting people and enjoy that hospitality side of things, you don't always have to be front of desk when you work in tourism. I haven't met a customer in about 20 years, but it, you have to understand it and you have to know how it works. So that's the first thing is get out there and do those jobs. And I, I, it goes back to what I said before. I think, I think if you are doing that, then be constructively curious when you're there. So ask questions, but ask them in a positive way. And try and learn about why things are happening in that business and how they all connect and the way you fit into that, um, that jigsaw. Because then you'll understand what the opportunities are and where those opportunities fit. Get a mentor. Do everything you can to find a mentor. If you have a bad boss, get a new boss. Because mm -hmm. you want somebody who is going to, the, the time that you have in your early part of your career will define how you progress through the latter part of your career. So find a good boss. There are plenty of choices out there. Even in this environment, there are choices. So don't stay working for somebody who doesn't give you that kind of uh, motivation and drive to succeed. I will always employ on attitude and I will employ on experience well before I'll employ on qualifications. So that's something, and, I, and everybody I talk to has the same kind of philosophy as well. And lastly, when you go to work, 
commit to it, work hard, show your bosses and show the people around you that you are a worker and you are committed to the organization that's paying your wages. Do that and you'll never look back. Wow. I think that's great. I think we can all take some tips out of that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if we haven't, we probably come across it in our duration of our careers. Hmm. Very good. Okay, Brian, look, just to wrap it up, we do um, a final quick fire question every week. So, and I didn't send these through because I need you to come up with the first answer that pops into your head. This terrifies me. <laughs> it's not that bad. <laughs> so if you're ready, we'll, get, we'll crack in. Summer or winter? Summer. Uh, chocolate or coffee? Chocolate. Rugby or football, Rugby. a.k.a. soccer? Rugby. Rugby. Mountains or ocean? Mountains. North Island or South Island? South Island. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sandals or jandals? Bare feet. Ooh. Favourite place in New Zealand? Home. <laughs> okay. And favourite place in the world? Edinburgh. Nice. And favourite ice cream flavour for summer? Vanilla. Awesome. There you go. That wasn't too painful. No, that wasn't too painful. I'm not sure what it says about me, but it wasn't too painful. <laughs> well, it says that we need to get a few more North Islanders on the podcast because I'm being very outnumbered. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, so, awesome. Brian, thank you for joining us today. That wraps up our show. But for our listeners out there who want to keep in touch, they can find us on Instagram, Facebook, or the website, destinatenz.com. But thanks again, Brian, and we wish you and YHA all the very best um, for what's ahead over the summer and beyond. And thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Brian.